Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about creativity and seamless storytelling in design. What is that all about? Stick around. Ann Michelson and I first met at, gosh, it was the apex of the pandemic. I, I went out to a project of hers and, and shot. I shot this project in Newport Beach, California. One of the things that immediately struck me when I first walked in was just that the seamlessness in the storytelling as told by the design. The home sat on a plateau overlooking the Pacific Ocean with zones from outdoor cooking to one of the most amazing sunken outdoor fire pits I've ever seen. Everything had its place and was connected and interconnected to each other for easy and meaningful transitions to the next space. Most writers, journalists, or others who cover the industry, as I've seen it anyway, don't really speak much or speak enough uh, on or about the negative spaces that connect feature areas how the transitions add to the overall aesthetic movement and functionality of the work i love that part of the work and anne is an absolute master in this regard enjoy my conversation with designer and visionary Anne michelson and we'll get to that right after this. I am so proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They have been presenting partners of Convo by Design for four years now, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the absolute best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide, and they do this for a few reasons. They were the first company to design and patent the technology here in the U.S., dating back to 1958. Thermosol, a U.S.-based manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? I have the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me and, and you know this, that the idea of luxury has changed, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory, or it's just not considered a, a luxury. And if you want to add steam, you have one true option if you want the absolute best, and that's Thermosol. Mitch Altman, the third-generation CEO of this family-owned company for 65 years, continues to innovate the bathroom and shower space through technological marvels such as intelligent showering systems, sound therapy, aromatherapy, technical interfaces, and so much more. And now Thermosol, the industry leader in steam bath equipment and technology since 1958, is enhancing its already stellar family of products with a new indoor and outdoor luxury sauna collection. Each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. Thermosol's latest collections offer luxurious features and exceptional design. A bathroom isn't luxury without steam, and there's only one option if you want the finest experience. It's Thermosol. Check them out at thermosol.com and at thermosol on the socials. Thank you, Thermosol. It's funny too, because I'm trying to remember when um, the last time you and I met in person, it was, it was the heart of the pandemic. 
It was and, no, no, no. It the last time was the ICAA annual dinner where you were there. That's MC. right. That's right. It was yeah, uh, honoring Richard Landry. That was Correct. the last time. Sorry, I should have said the first time we met. Correct. That was at your house. I, I love your house. I love your view. Um, one of the things that I think is just so spectacular is not just the flow and organization of the space, but also your outdoor fire pit. I think I have pictures of it too, because I was just so enamored with it. Um, I love that fire pit. Do you use that all the time? Well, we used it last night. Oh, so did you? I had, because uh, I'm a nut, I had eight people to dinner last night. And afterwards we sat out there for a couple hours. Yeah, we do. And it's the neat thing about it being sunken is if it's windy or a little cold, it really, you know, combats that. Yeah, no, that's, that's the coolest thing. It's sunken. You have a, you have a gas fireplace in there and you have just some of the most spectacular views around. It's amazing. Tell me, cause I love this. Um, you and I had a chance to spend some, some quality time together, uh, while I was out there shooting, um, your, your project. Um, tell me the origin story. Tell me the why, tell me the how, tell me, why do you do this? Oh, why do I do design? Yeah. Why do I live in the house? <laughs> both, both are good stories. Um, it's funny. I look back and I remember being a young girl and I grew up here in Newport Beach in Southern California and going to the beach and like drawing floor plans in the sand or designing a restaurant on paper and, I, and, and rearranging my mother's house when they'd go out of town. And it never like, at that point, it didn't click. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. I went on and got a degree in art history. And I thought I would be a curator at a, you know, museum or something. And then right before I started graduate school in art history, I decided to take a class at UCLA in the decorative arts, the history of the decorative arts. And that turned out to be the intro class to their um, interior and architectural design program, which is quite renowned at UCLA. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I think I'll just keep doing this and not get my master's in art history. And that's how it started. And after about a year of full-time, maybe two of school, I got my first job and I've been doing it ever since. And that was in 1980, maybe seven-ish. So it's been a while now. How did you get that first job? Do you remember? Was it a yeah, friend of a friend? It was or? a friend of mine. It was a friend of mine's mother. It was a older home in San Marino. And they had a room that somewhere, you know, a 1920s home or maybe 30s, that somewhere along the line, the back room had been turned into a Brady Bunch, you know, faux wood paneled mustard carpeted room that really should was originally I am sure and we restored it to being a sunroom and I remember we took that paneling off and I had someone come in and like plaster the walls so that they had a little bit of that natural slub like they would have had in the originally and we did a Brunswick and fee vine border around the, the ceiling you know the whole the whole 80s thing and but returned it to what it you know likely would have been in the first place and then, and then they did the kitchen. So, I mean, it was a pretty decent first job. Yeah. And I did a lot of jobs in those days too, for people my age, right? Who bought their first home. We ripped up the carpet. We redid the wood floors. We did a little this and that. And then it kind of grew as, as your peers get older and older. So the jobs get better and better. And then also you get jobs outside of your peer group that are, you know, bigger and better. You know, what's interesting to me 
And so you're you're based in Newport Beach. Um, you have a lot of clients in in Orange County. And I remember, you know, I'm a native Angelino, and I remember when I was growing up, the 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 orange curtain. You know, if you're from LA, you never went unless you were going to San Diego for some reason. You never crossed the orange curtain. Um, you never you never kind of went down there. It, it was just it was very. Um, homogenized. It was very Irvine master planned. You know, the, the grass all looked the same. The houses all looked the same. There was no differentiator really. And I don't, I don't know when you would know better than I, when that changed, but Orange County now is just a spectacular hotbed of design. When did that happen? Well, it's interesting because I don't know if you know this, but the house that you visited me in is the house I grew up in. And my parents decided to sell it, I don't know, seven, five, seven years ago. And I said, well, I'll buy it. And so I ended up buying my own house back from my parents. But they had a very contemporary taste. They had a very exquisite collection of contemporary artwork. It was the only contemporary house of anybody I knew. Everything was country French. That was the rage in sort of the 80s. And I moved back here in uh, 1998 and about five, seven years later, I did a house that was kind of contemporary. When I went to sell it, I really couldn't sell it. Still, nobody was buying a contemporary house. I'd say five years after that, things really started to change. And I think for a variety of reasons. One, a lot of the original homes in the area needed to be redone. And a lot of them were torn down. And as more and more work exists, more and more artists and designers and contractors and builders and architects move to town. And it is a much less homogenous place. I mean, the, the generational change from when I went to the high school here to where my children went to the high school in terms of the population is really kind of spectacular that in one generation, it can change that much. And I think when you have different cultures and different things, everything sort of changes. It really is interesting too, and I'm and I'm curious how did that affect and inform the the manner in which you design? You know, growing up in in the house, and it's funny too because now it makes perfect sense to me because I remember what, thinking walking in. It's a really unique floor plan. Um, and by the way, I I'm kind of dwelling on that a little bit because. It's funny. When I was growing up, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, you know, as a teenager in the 1980s. Talking about homogenous? (laughs) Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, I grew up in a house that was that was built in the in the. It was on the other side of of the of the modern side of things, you know, it was built in the late sixties. So it was one of those where you had all the rock on the ceiling. It was very Brady Bunch. It was very, very Brady Bunch. We had, I mean, and we had like that, that wallpaper that you could pet. Like it was the, it was the flocked furry wallpaper. So did this house, by the way, when we, when my, (laughs) (laughs) and shag carpet. 
and orange groves across the street. But what was really interesting is you, you had that, but you also had that juxtaposed against the Googies and all of the mid-century moderns that were there. And, you know, the Wallace Neff Spanish revival, you know, movement and the Hollywood Regency movement. So you, you had all of these different vibes. Growing up in that house, I'm just curious how, how that, I think growing up in design, growing up around art can inform one I've just kind of put this, you know, it, it seems like there's some through lines here that it informs the way that that people design pro and work professionally. How did that how does that affect the way you work? Well, I think it affected my, you know, I majored in art history. Right. So like I grew up with fine art in the house, so I never thought that a painting should match the sofa. Um, and a lot of people do. Right. Like or they don't know the difference today between fine art and basically a poster. You know what I mean? Like you just don't know because you don't know. So it definitely informed my interest, my fueled my interest um, traveling. And I was lucky enough that I was able to study abroad when I was in college in Florence. So like all of these things, right, affect your worldview and your understanding of what's out there and, and what real artists do. And, and, and I would say, I appreciate fine furniture because that's a, that's an art form as well. And, and I just think it affects everything all the time. And, you know, I had to learn, I had to go back and learn the part of like, well, not everything has to be the, you know, not every house is filled with everything being precious. You have to have a balance just like in for budget reasons and for practicality reasons. So I just think it affects everything. You know, it's interesting. And, and those who listen to the show and I've gotten comments like this before I get emails all the time, like, why are you talking about Los Angeles? You know, I'm in Houston and that doesn't really affect me or I'm in Atlanta or, you know, I'm in Arkansas and, you know, things are different here. They're really not. It's just, it's interesting to me because there is a difference. And I've noticed this over the years, like the difference between, and I find it fascinating, the difference between a Los Angeles designer and an Orange County designer is very, very similar, I've noticed to the difference between a Southern California designer and a Midwest designer. You know what I mean? I was at, um, I was at the Mart a year and a half ago for um, Design Chicago, and I was talking to some Midwest designers about publicity and promotion and marketing. And they all have a, this very, like to a, to a creative, this very like low key, it's don't look at me, look at the work kind of thing. And in LA, New York, Chicago, it's very like, look at me. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because I think that, you know, it's, it's variety, you know, variety is the spice of life and you have to have all different kinds of personalities to match all different types of clients. But I think history and that kind of thing and where you are kind of informs and and sort of guides who you are. And I'm just curious, is that, do you recognize that? Is that is have you seen that difference between, you know, if, for instance, L.A. And, and Orange County design? Yes. And I and I think that, you know, I probably fall in a little bit more to more of an L.A. kind of style designer, I think, maybe than an Orange County designer. I mean, there's a lot of um, designers in Orange County that are more specific to this region, if that makes sense. Um, and I think I have a more world view and I have projects all over the place. So that kind of, you know, changes that. Um, 
but I do, I do see that, especially when I'm lucky enough to go to some, you know, international event or a national event and you're talking to designers from different areas. And of course you meet designers from Dallas and, and, you know, they're informed by the fact that they have these gorgeous, more traditional homes, unless they're new, you know, I think everywhere you are, right. You have that background of what the architecture is there, the historical architecture and the new architecture. You know what's interesting though, and it's funny you should mention that because I've been I've been talking about this a lot lately. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You you get stories out of Southern California all the time about these great works, these great projects, these great homes or residences or buildings that are torn down all the time. I did um I did a piece, I want to say it must have been a it's almost a year ago now. Um maybe even longer. I'm not sure. It, it all time just sort of runs into each other now post pandemic, but it was about 1001 North Roxbury, which is a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a home on North Roxbury in Beverly Hills and um, tech mogul buys it and tears it down. And I mean, this is a house that's like Lucille Ball was on one side and Jack Benny was on the other. Esther Williams swam in the pool. And I mean, you know, it's, it's this incredible project that was property that was in AD and it was in Lux and it was really covered well. And someone comes in and says, and they paid like close to $50 million for the house, 5-0 for the house to tear it down on this two acre property. It's, it's hard crazy. It's so hard for me. That's hard. I did a project in Atherton and, you know, Atherton's a very old neighborhood in Silicon Valley. And in the old days, it was where, you know, sort of the country for San Francisco wealthy people to go out for the weekends or the summer and over time became a permanent residence. And then with the tech boom became the place to buy a home when you, when you, when you started Google or whatever. And I did a home where we kept the original ranch home. Interestingly enough, it's a family where they bought the parents home from the siblings and we redid it within the framework of what it was. And people were like, amazed because almost every house was being raised and a whole new mansion going up. And it is a shame. I think California hasn't done the best job of preserving important. I mean, we all know that, right? There's lots of buildings in LA that I wish would have been preserved. It's too bad. Sometimes it's hard with, you know, modern regulations with, you know, codes. Sometimes it's hard to redo an old house. You are listening to my conversation with Ann Michelson of Ann Michelson Designs. We will be right back. Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery style space with a thoughtful display of products purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. Well, and that's kind of what I wanted to go into with you because in looking at your work, and we're going we're gonna to talk about your work in, in a little bit, um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. One of the things I said in the episode with North Roxbury, and I have said this since, and I will say it again, like with North, North Roxbury, I, I'm not mad about it. I'm not. I'm not, a, I'm not mad. I'm not offended. I, you know why? Because that's not my neighborhood. I don't live there. I don't walk my dog in front of that house 
anymore, you know, or ever. I don't, um, I don't drive by it anymore because I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of the country now. I'm not affected. If a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody there to hear it, did it make a sound? It, in this case, the loss of that property didn't make a sound to me. However, that loss is felt by the neighbors, by the residents of Beverly Hills, by the people who live, you know, I love, I love the Googies. I love Googies. I love that norms on La Cienega Boulevard, um, you know, by the Beverly Center. I, I, whenever I go down there and I'm in the West Hollywood Design District, I try to stop there just to get something to eat because I like being in it. I just, I love, it's just, it's quirky and it's weird and I love it. But, but if they tore that down, which they will someday, I, I won't be upset by that except for the fact that I don't get to go there anymore. Limited, right? But for a designer, for a creative, for someone like you, this is, this, this is what you do. This is what you create. The idea of somebody coming in later and tearing down or changing something that you do, it's become so common. It's part of the job. But do you think about that? Do you, do you, do you attach the concept of legacy to your work? Is that what you strive for? Or do you just strive to and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but this is the other side of it, is to create what's now for the people for whom you're designing. Now that's really interesting. And I think it would affect me more if I was an architect and was constructing buildings that I thought were historically important or would become historically important. I like my work to reflect the architecture of the property and the environment in which it is, if possible. And I love architecture and I love contemporary architecture and, and, and traditional architecture. I love good architecture. But for the interiors, I feel like I want those to reflect the people who live there. And I don't think I'm offended if somebody different lives there and therefore what's reflected is different. I, cause it's not like, and cause it's not like a museum and often, although I did have a bunch of houses self-furnished during the, a bunch of clients sold their homes furnished, which was, a, I did feel very complimented that the houses sold quickly, that they sold at the top of the price per square foot for the areas and that the people wanted everything. Um, but in general, the people take a lot of their furniture with them. And I have some interesting examples where you know, I've used many of the same pieces in different homes in different ways and and how that piece moves with the family and does different things in different places. But I don't I, I don't think I've ever felt like, oh, my gosh, someone bought Joe's house and redecorated it. I don't think that bothers me. Well, I, th I guess to the point where I'm trying to go to, I think I got off on a tangent. I, I think, you know, the, the difference between L.A. And, and Orange County, not to dwell on it, too, but L.A. And here's where I'm kind of going with it. I've been I've been thinking a lot lately about what is design. What is design? And, you know, everyone seems to have their own definition. And the reason I started thinking about it was because I recently uh, took a course on artificial intelligence and machine learning through MIT. And, and it was fascinating what I learned. And if you look at social, you start to see people who are you know, designing products with AI. And by the way, if you're using AI to design products, do you still need a designer? I mean, I think that there are people who feel you don't need a designer now. 
And those same people would continue to feel that way. I think, and I am no expert on AI, but I think that for like what I do for someone or for a family, I don't think that AI could could get, understand that yet, but I might be naive. Well, no, I, you, I don't think you are because I think it's true. Um, I've spoken to enough creatives in, in, in my career, in my life to know that the what you do is far greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And what is design? You know, is it just an accumulation of things and stuff that you strategically place throughout a given space um, to create something that is, you know, two-dimensional and looks good on a magazine cover or looks good on the internet, or is it something that someone actually has to live in? You know where we are right now, which I think is interesting, and I want your take on this. I feel like we're far enough away from the pandemic to have almost began, begun to forget how scary it was at the beginning and how we realized how important our homes were at the beginning of it. It's, I was just saying the other day, I can't believe how long ago it was. It's Feels been, that way. Right? It's been a while. Yeah. But I do think people look at their homes differently, even if they don't remember why. Or they don't associate it immediately to fear or to being in a lockdown or whatever your situation was during that period. But definitely, I mean, just from the obvious, like more people are working from home more often, if not 100% of the time, you know, workspace or and, and entertaining at home and, you know, the legacy of those things, the, the, you know, I even see people picnic in the, in the park now, which I don't remember seeing it at all pre-pandemic. And then during the pandemic, it was crazy. And I, you know, so certain things, you know, you change your habit and it just becomes part of your life for a new reason because it's yeah. enjoyable or it's more convenient to work at home. Or I was just on a board meeting yesterday for our homeowners association and it was via zoom. Not because it needed to be via Zoom, but just because I think people realized, oh, this is easier. It but is it easier. It wouldn't have been via Zoom five years ago. No, but you know what is, is interesting too is you also via Zoom because I, I do so much now. You know, before the pandemic, the number of interviews that I did this way were non-existent. I think I did maybe three via Skype. The rest were all in person. So I, I took my gear when I went to New York. I interviewed there when I... After, after the pandemic, you know, I didn't do anything live again for, gosh, a year and a half, two years, and then finally started doing live event. But I still do more of these now than I did live, which kind of brings me to the, the essence of, of what you do and the, the artistry and the skill of the work and the manner in which you apply it. Um, and I, I kind of want to look through that now. I'm just curious, before we look through some of your work, I'm just curious, how, how has that experience, <clears throat> excuse me, how has that experience changed you as a designer? What do you do differently now than you did before? What do you, what do you view the purpose of design as now? Is it different or is it the same? I don't know if the purpose of design is different. Um, because the purpose doesn't change, right? But what you're, but some of the goals for an individual project sometimes have changed. And I think one, you know, big change is I think more people are able to be 
more places and continue to work. Therefore, having a place to work in multiple homes. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to have clients with multiple homes and it is often comes up when there isn't, let's say a home office in the home, you know, where are the phone calls going to take place? Where are the Zoom calls going to take place? The ability to be somewhere for longer periods of time, maybe somewhere you only went to for weekends. Now, maybe you're there for 10 days. I had never been on a Zoom call before the pandemic. And I, um, I just, in fact, completed a job that we started in the first, that was the first job where my initial presentation to the client was via Zoom. And the job went great. Well, we just did another Zoom presentation for a new client. We could have gone there. It's only, it was in Manhattan Beach. It wasn't far, but it was so much easier for everybody just to do Zoom. So that's like a major change. Another change is that, you know, a lot of people had a lot of success in this industry during the pandemic. Those that pivoted and got their remote ability to send samples, provide service. I mean, I never used to get samples in the mail unless I was at the showroom and something wasn't in stock and they had to send it to me. We have three to five containers of samples every day arriving in the office now, just because it's just become really common to send a list out and they arrive. But those systems weren't in place pre-pandemic for that to happen. And so that's huge. It's made things amazing. And I think a lot of people may have worked that way who weren't near a design center, you know, like they were in a a more remote location. They probably did more of that, I assume, but I never did because I was either in LA or Laguna Beach. So these are practical things. Do I think the overall purpose of design changes? No. Just We're more interested in health and wellness and, you know, all that stuff, but that's not the purpose. When you get samples now, and it's interesting because in the past you could go to a showroom and depending on how the the sampling works, you know, you, you either check it out or they give it to you and then you take it home. But now it's being sent to you. A, is this, are these samples that you've requested or B, are they just like sending them out because you should have this? That's a really good question because it's a little bit of both or it's mostly things we request for the project. But some vendors do say, hey, I really want you to look at this. And we do get unsolicited, let's say, samples from vendors that we use. And then what do you do with all the sample material? So that's funny because I'm old school and I remember yeah. when I started and they would charge you if you didn't return them. So I just had a talk with the, the office the other day saying, you know, girls, we don't just throw these away. This is expensive for these vendors. We need to return them. So we make a pile of things we don't need. And eventually we do get them back to where they belong. But, you know, it, the ones we use, and we also have um, things stored by color for future. I'm getting notifications, even though I turned it off. I'm sorry. That's all right. I can't hear them. Oh, good. Um, we store certain things that we do think we would use on a future project by color and pattern and just keep them. And I think because I do enough work, vendors aren't upset. They know that eventually I'll be using these things. And then the ones for the client's jobs, of course, we have by client. And then the ones we're just not using or don't think we'll use, we try to return. So it's interesting because one of the things that I love to do, and I lead into that because I want to talk about some of your work and I love doing this. And I always, I always have to sort of preface this by saying, yes, I'm fully aware that this is an audio podcast. And if we're talking about the way design looks, sometimes it can be frustrating, but 
Um, I think generally speaking, talking about the concepts behind the way design looks, but also it's it's kind of fun if you're driving, don't do this. But if you're if you're back at the office or if you're on the treadmill um, or if you're in your home studio, go to annmichelsondesign.com, click on portfolio because we're going to talk about some of the work. And Ann Michelson is with an E, not an O. Uh, and that's always a thing because I go to the wrong place sometimes. I'm sure it's that's a common occurrence. Yeah. First thing I wanted to ask you is you have a Hawaii portfolio up there too. And I'm curious about your experience in Hawaii. I love Hawaii. I love everything about it. Let's be honest. When the surf's up, there is a hard time getting trades and getting work done in Hawaii. And it's, it's not always easy to get material there. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I'm very fortunate because the contractors that we work with um, mostly are really, really professional. Now, that being said, they still have to get subcontractors and all those kind of things, but they have a very good team and crew of people that they work with. Um, and then, but it is different. Um, things are not, what they call it island time or aloha time, it, you know? And so we had to calm ourselves down sometimes. We have to fly people in, like certain of the trades, my projects are mostly um, on the big island of Hawaii, but I do have something on Maui now. And that's been really slow, waiting for city approvals has been like, I don't know, it's been way over a year. Um, those things take a long time there. There's nothing I can do to change that. Um, but we'll fly, and and this is part of the, the lifestyle there. You know, they'll come from Oahu to Hawaii to do the wallpaper install or the all the window covering install. Um, materials, you know, most materials come from here. They don't come from Hawaii. So many, many, most things we, we container ship over there. And we sort of have that routine down. And I've had to explain to clients, they're like, wouldn't it be easier to get things here? I said, it'll be the same. Like, Everything comes from here one way or the other. Either it came from here already and you're going to pay huge uh, extra charges because they've they've shipped it and stored it for however long. Or we do everything here and then put everything on a container and ship it there. And, and it really was quite efficient. And those boats get there in like 10 days. Great service unloads them and, and installs. So it really has been, once you kind of get the routine down, uh, not too difficult, but because we know the routine, but it's, uh, it's a nice, it's a nice place to work. It's, it's a fun vibe. And I love sort of like I do everywhere, sort of reinterpreting, you know, what it means to do a home in Hawaii. So, you know, I try to do things a little different than you see over and over again. I, I love that. And, and the first one I wanted to jump into is the architectural Kukio estate. That is um, just uh, on the market now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. What an absolutely extraordinary space, inside and out. And um, the architect did a, a seriously a magnificent job in in constructing this. It's it's almost like saying how small a footprint can we possibly have where there's virtually no obstruction of views, mountain on one side, ocean on the other. But tell me, tell me how you approach this. Tell me for whom you designed it, what they wanted and what they wound up with. Well, so this is a, uh, 
a developer, for lack of a better okay. term. Um, his focus, however, is to do architecturally important properties, whether that's a historic property that he renovates with care and with um, respect for the original architecture, which I just have so much respect for. Or in this case, where he hires really great architects and says, let's do something important and new and different. And I was brought in to furnish it um, so that somebody could purchase this and move in to not have to wait another year to be able to use their brand new home in Hawaii. So we approached it with respect to the architecture, respect of the surroundings, neutral enough to be appealing to many different people, but without being boring and, and not and not have a point of view. And I think it has a really neat point of view. We originally just did a couple of the rooms just to give like a taste. And then we did renderings for other rooms to sort of show people what it could be like. But we're right now working on doing um, the rest of the house, which is really exciting. When you do a develop uh, a project for a developer that's not being crafted for, for a person, I almost consider that to be like a set decorator who's doing a, a show who's doing a movie and you're designing for, for a script. So in that case, you have, a, you have a, a family or a person. When you do something for a developer, do you attach personalities to it? Do you put, do you put people there or do you, do you look at the space and design for the space? I think a little bit of both. Um, I didn't like create a whole family like, you know, dad does this and mom does that or whatever, because we want it to be flexible, right? Like this family who buys this might have five grandchildren or they might have teenage children or, you know, we don't know. Uh, it's really important to me that we use quality things. Now, we have some options for the potential buyer, like they might want a beautiful John Pomp chandelier, but those kind of things we don't we don't put in, but we have like that as options. So we, we want to be practical. We want to be respectful of the budget of the developer, but I really try hard to make sure that everything is quality, that it's, the, that it lives up to the quality of the house, but that it isn't like a set or like a, or like a model home that if you sit in it, it's uncomfortable. I want, I don't want people to buy this and go, Oh, it's look good, but it's really not good. So we really worked hard to make sure it was you know, nice quality, practical fabrics. I love to use um, indoor outdoor fabrics in vacation homes in general and homes in general, but particularly in a place like this. So that if you have a guest who's in the pool and they sit on your sofa, you're not panicked, but when, but you can't tell that it's indoor outdoor fabric, things like that. We really try to accomplish as much as we can. And then to leave some room for personalization later, right? Because you know, I want whoever owns it for it to be their home. And hopefully we'll get to help them a little bit when that happens. Ah, I see where you're going with that. Love it. Um, shifting then and coming back to the mainland, uh, looking at the personalized coastal new build, because I wanted to I wanted to sort of juxtapose, juxtapose the, um, you know, a developer project in Hawaii, now back on the mainland, still with a new build, it's on a smaller footprint. It feels, it feels like there are some original details. Like, you know, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but outside um, the outdoor fireplace looks like it was built against a wall that was originally there. Maybe, maybe it wasn't, but tell me about this project. And again, it's same developer or different developer? Different, different. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
and, and not a developer, right? This is a family who. Oh, know, okay, okay. I work with the architect. I love my favorite thing is to get hired at the very, very beginning, like even before an architect's hired, but at least hopefully, you know, at the beginning of the architecture. So I can sit in in those meetings and hear what the architect is thinking. I want to respect their vision for the property and work collaboratively as a team. Um, And we sort of, you know, we take an assessment of the family or the couple's lifestyle you know, their travels, their interests, their, do they entertain? How do they entertain? You know, do they have grown children, little children, all those things and try to create a home that it looks like I did it because it doesn't look like Ann Michelson design, right? Like it looks like your really great house, your family's great house. I was just at a project that I'm actually doing for myself. And I said, this, and it's been a year long, complete renovation. I said, this looks like I didn't do anything. It looks like it should have been this way. And that's sort of my goal. Like, it looks like this is how it's supposed to look. Even when it's Love. a, when it's not a new build, but it's a, um, you know, just a renovation. And we do a lot of changing. I like it to look like it was always supposed to be like this. Yeah. And looking at the kitchen, you know, a couple of things that I just think are, are amazing about this space. First and foremost, you know, when ground up, you look at the floor. So you look at the wood in the kitchen and the stone outside. There is an absolutely, literally seamless transition between the indoors, outdoors, from the wood floors to the stone exterior to the seating area out there, the, the glass, the, the wall of glass, it just completely opens up. It just, it feels like it was supposed to be that way. Thank you so much because I really like to be able to do like the same floor inside and out on a ground floor when you have these seamless doors and endless views, or in this case, a courtyard. And these clients absolutely wanted wood floors on the first floor, which I totally respect. I wanted that to still feel seamless. And so it was the search for appropriate exterior material that could, you can see it kind of goes in like a foot too. So in case any water encroached to the interior that we didn't have an issue. And that's a relatively narrow space that you have to walk through. And I just did not want that line to be like an obvious way to make that space feel more narrow, that hallway. And I think we really achieved the goal, which makes me feel really good. And, you know, the the other thing too, I, I kind of have this, and I've said this numerous times before, but I feel like a huge budget and a huge space, it's not really challenging a designer. I mean, you can take a big budget and a big space and you can do almost anything, but you take a small space and you make it look big, feel big, feel comfortable, be completely functional and and have the other, you know, non-quantifiable elements, you know, like the feeling of transitioning indoors and outdoors, having it feel like it's supposed to be that way and not be jarring or disruptive to the, to the feel of the space. That's not easy to do. And that is something we do a lot in, in Orange County and in Southern California, where land is expensive and lots are small. And a lot of these homes, you know, were built where originally they were little teeny weeny beach cottages. They weren't meant for full-time family residences. So it becomes more and more important that that outdoor space is very livable and usable because you're very limited on these lots. Do you know, it's funny too. As I look at this and I scroll down, 
I'm looking at what, what must be the, the master bath and it's got to be almost as big as the kitchen. <laughs> it's pretty big. And by the way, I, I have to clarify these days, um, you know, saying master bath, um, I'm not obtuse and I'm not unaware that other people are calling it something different. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the time to get into the conversation, but I have, I have yet for someone to explain to me how primary equals master in terms of what it's supposed to represent. So I, I have to clarify every now and then I'm not obtuse to it. It's, it's just, that's, this is not a powder bath. This is not a Jack and Jill. This has got to be the, 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 the premier bathroom in the home. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely fair. And you'll see there's that beautiful wall of stone in the shower. Tell me about that. Well, we just really wanted something spectacular there. And I actually got it up in the in the San Fernando Valley, that 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 slab. It's really something very pretty. Definitely it's gorgeous. Everything was sort of designed around that slab. But it's interesting. Talk to me about the choice and choice being this is a huge bathroom in a house that's not necessarily huge. I mean, by looking at the, at the kitchen in, in comparison, maybe maybe, it's quite as big as your perspective of the, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I get that. I get that. But I think having, having two separate vanities, having um, the tub separate from the shower enclosure itself, it's just certain things. And, And I totally get your point. I guess what I'm going with is that, there are always choices to be made. Like, you know, you go back to the kitchen. It would have been very easy for someone to say, look, smallish footprint. We're not going to have this courtyard. We just don't have the luxury of it. And there's a bedroom off to the side. We want to maintain some of that privacy to whatever that bedroom is. I'm assuming it's a bedroom. And so we're just going to enclose it, that side of the house. We're just going to enclose it. The choice was made to have a courtyard, which I think was the right choice. I think it's a brilliant choice. Yeah. I mean, I think it, if it was a choice, I think it'd be a very nice choice. It's actually deter. It's actually, um, you're only allowed to have so many buildable, build enclosed square feet on these lots. So the, the choices become, how do we utilize the lot with enough outdoor space in the right places? And I've seen it where the choices aren't well-made and you sort of end up with this outdoor space that's not usable, but that house is built the maximum square footage you're allowed to build enclosed. So we have, yes. but it yes. was well chosen where it went. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing. Yes, you have to have it, but you didn't necessarily have to have it there. So the, sure. the backyard and other choices were made outside that seating area around the outdoor fireplace in the, in what I'm assuming to be the, to be the backyard where the outdoor kitchen is. Um, it's actually the front yard because Ooh, okay. on an alley. So there's a garage on the backyard and then there's a, there's another, there's a whole roof deck on this project on the third floor that has another uh, whole sitting area, fireplace and an outdoor kitchen. So that's uh, how you get like a lot of living space in these little lots. Yes. Okay. So this home has three kitchens. It does. Two outdoor, one indoor. Yes. When you, when you think about outdoor kitchens versus indoor kitchens, not as one over the other, but one with the others, do you try to apply different purpose 
based on where the kitchens are? Do you have different ideas about how and what you're going to specify? Do you try to keep appliances the same, not necessarily matchy-matchy, but do you try to keep a consistency or through line? Or do you use different products based on where these certain kitchens are and how they're going to be used? I think the latter. Um, because you don't need the same, right? Like you don't need, well, somebody might want, right? They might say, I entertain 40 people downstairs and 40 people upstairs, but we try to analyze how they'll use the different spaces and make those kitchens uh, appropriate for the area. And it is nice, like if you're using a particular brand to try to use that through just so that the homeowner doesn't end up with like maintenance issues with 20 different companies. It's hardly ever only one, but we try to limit it to some degree when that is makes the most sense. So it it comes into the thought process. It doesn't determine everything. It's just one factor. But definitely, like, you know, I take into the, the homeowner's lifestyle. If, you know, my, I love to entertain. You've seen my outdoor kitchen. I can literally make, I think we talked about this. I think I can do every single thing I can do in my indoor kitchen outside if I want to. Yeah. I love that. I love entertaining outside, being able to cook outside. You know, some people, we have a, several homes where downstairs um, we have like a smaller barbecue. So if it's just the couple or, you know, four, six people, they can grill downstairs. But on the roof deck, there's an entire bigger grill refrigerator, you know, more things and they have a bigger table and more seating. We said, you know, there's no point in having a huge kitchen with nowhere for anybody to sit and it's three floors away from the seating. So we try and there's a variety on my website of different roof decks where some even has a little indoor butler's pantry and some have, I try to get bathrooms on those roof decks when possible because I think people will use them more if, you know, there's seating and dining and every other thing you need up there. But yes, definitely it depends where it is and how the end user will use it. So here's a pretty much California, New York exclusive question for you as it relates to your outdoor kitchen design, somewhat your indoor as well. As gas goes away, stupid question. It's a pedestrian question. I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm just curious. Can you, can you specify induction in an outdoor environment? I, I don't know the answer to that. And I am on Middleby Residential's Advisory Council. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them too. You know, this is a really good question to start talking about. The <clears throat> induction things that I've used, you cannot. And I recently asked the question for a project. I mean, obviously there's propane, but that's, you know, less convenient. And, and, and that is an interesting thing to start talking about how is the, the gas issue going to affect outside. So far, I haven't heard that it has. I've never heard it brought up before. So you're very cutting edge with your thoughts. Um, but it's a really good question. And I would assume that there are people working on something like that. But as of now, I don't think so. I only, and I asked the question because I, last week I was in LA and I did a, um, I, I moderated a panel conversation about electrification and uh, you know, what's funny. I did a whole panel on it and I didn't even think to ask the question while we were talking about it. Cause I, and, and I'm, I feel kind of silly about it that I don't know the answer to this. We just recently specified um, induction indoors here at, on our design house project. And I love it. I love the induction. I really do. It's very, very different. Cause I have, I still have gas outside. 
on the on the outdoor kitchen. And I'm not ready to trade that in just yet, just yet. But at some point, you know, here in Oklahoma, I don't think that's going to be <laughs> a choice. An oil and gas state, that's not going to be a choice in my lifetime here in Oklahoma. But in California, New York, it's happening in real time. And I don't know the answer. Like, do you have to stick with propane or um, because, you know, if the, if the gas outlet isn't installed in, and it's illegal to do so, you're going to have to make a choice. But because, I mean, look at this, look at this project alone, you've got two outdoor kitchens, full outdoor kitchens and one indoor kitchen. I mean, that's, that's going to be a thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're not using them all at once and you're not necessarily using three kitchens, any more total meals than you use one kitchen, right? You're just dividing it between different spaces. So I don't know that you're using any more resources. Um, and I haven't heard that that rule is applying to the exterior of the house, but that's very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things we do, right? Fire pits are gas. Yeah. Why? They're not, a, you know, there's a lot of uh, things. That's very interesting. And I agree with you, by the way, about induction. I, I've cooked on it and it's, you know, those of us above a certain age grew up with old electric stoves that were just really awful. So when you say the coils, literally freak out. <laughs> But, you know, you'll talk to us. I've done a I've done a, a test on a very high powered gas range next to an induction and the induction boiled the water faster and cooled it down faster. You you have mm-hmm. more control, but it's going to be a learning curve for people to you know accept that. It was explained to me once that by by actually the the um, the corporate chef for Sub-Zero Wolf and Cove. Um, it was explained to me that if you're cooking with gas, you're you're cooking according to the flame. If you're cooking with induction, you're cooking according to the food. And that made perfect sense to me. And it has since turned out to be true. But it's just a it's a different experience all the way around. But aren't you impressed with how fast you can heat up a pot of water? Like it's really impressive. It's it's ridiculous how fast. Um and it's it's really it's really nice. It's really nice. Um, you know what's interesting though, you you don't get the same. I don't know what you want to yeah, it's the same vibe, like like you know, man cooking around fire, you know, and man, I don't mean gender, I just mean species. It's just like us cooking around fire and and fire and flame and food. It's just all inextricably tied together. But I will tell you, it is way more efficient. Um, so I love that. Next project I wanted to, to ask you about was the architecturally streamlined Mediterranean. Yeah, I, need a more, I need a more romantic name for this. I really do. Oh, but... Maybe you can name it for us. We will, we're taking <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> we'll have a naming contest. Here's one of the things that I really noticed about this. And um, one of the things that I've learned over time is that really great designers have developed a through line that is present in their work. It's not that you have your style, because look, I've had so many designers and creatives tell me, end of the day, it doesn't matter what my style is. It matters what my client's style is. And then I adapt, but the through lines are the same. And this particular project, there are some similarities and through lines with the outdoor kitchen, with the outdoor fireplaces, the way that certain things are set 
aside, you look at the kitchen where you have an, an eat-in option. Tell me about this kitchen. I want to start with that because I, I am a huge fan of the white kitchen. And I yeah. love this space. I really do. Well, I, don't, I don't know if you notice like the, the tile we chose for the backsplash has like a Mediterranean feel to it. But we, this house was um, a Newport Coast development where, you know, all the, the homes are the same. They were very heavily architecturally detailed, you know, with um, not clean arches, but like, you know, almost Moorishy kind of details. Just they aren't big homes and they just had a lot of stuff going on and not of the, you know, they were built for a mass market at the time. The, the bathrooms weren't, you know, very luxuriously laid out and, and they were a little goopy for lack. I, I'm, you know, I'm trying not to be critical, but a, a little goopy. And this couple actually moved here from Manhattan and Connecticut and bought the, they came out for a weekend. It was pretty crazy. They bought the house, hired me and bought a car. <laughs> they didn't have a car, you know, they were moving here from the East coast. And, uh, this is one of the houses that sold actually during the pandemic. He moved, he, his job transferred and it sold furnished, uh, which, which was kind of neat. We did take some other pieces from New York and incorporate them. And I just really wanted to, you know, respect the Mediterranean architecture, but in just a much cleaner, brighter, more open, modern way. And we just sort of cleaned up arches, opened up walkways to make them feel wider Ended up doing all new flooring throughout. It had like several different floorings, which made it feel very choppy. Cleaned up the wrought iron railing um, and then, you know, added more contemporary furnishings, which I think really sort of helped that sort of fresh feeling. And then the kitchen didn't really have, a, it had like a table shoved in a corner. It wasn't very big. And so it was a way to come up with, how do you make this feel roomy and elegant and fun to be in, in a relatively tight space? And I think that's, this layout really did that. Yeah, totally agree. And some other things too, the outdoor seating, um, again, very functional. It is, it is really an outdoor living space is, is what it is. Um, and then the office. I think the office is really interesting because it's super clean. It's very functional, but it's this idea of an, an actual office within a home. And I think that we're, that's a thing that's going to stay. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because it's the first time I did this and I've done it now numerous times since. Um, th this That's supposed to be like the formal living room. It's not a very big room, right? And then you have this great room kind of concept in the, in the, in the other space. And he, he needed a place to work. There was no need for this other little small sitting room necessarily, but it's done in a way where you know, in this case, a couple could sit there. I've done another one where four people can sit there and even more with Ottomans and hang out in a room. So yes, it's an office and yes, it's your front room, but it functions as the, the space that used to be the living room is now this office slash, I don't know, evening sitting room, different from the great room, not next to the kitchen. Maybe it's sometimes a little more formal than the other room. And I've done it now several times since, and this was all pre-pandemic. And it actually now just seems so, you know, of the moment. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And again, the outdoor area. And I, I think that I like this best because it kind of drives the, the point home. You know, Orange County is, 
I don't know if it's the originator of the tract home or the- and That's what that house was, definitely. Yeah, but it just goes to show you because, you know, tract homes and, and mass developers and mass building, we've got a how does, uh, you know, nationwide, we have a housing shortage now. And that's the cure, that's the fix. You know, when all these GIs came home from World War II, there was uh, this boom of tract homes and the difference is the designer. The difference is what a what a really talented designer can do with a space to differentiate it from others. And you know, isn't that isn't that the essence of design? You know, to come back full circle, isn't isn't that what designers do? It is. But you're and you're so right. In in this area, we do it a lot, right? The house we're doing isn't that different than the neighbor's house until we do it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, this was so much fun. And I'm, I've, I've made you late. Like I'm running over time. I, we, I've had so much fun talking to you. And this was, this was great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively with respect to interior design, exterior design and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic, a history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. Thank you, Anne, for taking the time to talk. Love catching up with you. See, this, this really is why I love doing this and why it is so rewarding for me to share these stories with you. I love Anne's story, and it was great reconnecting with her. Thank you to my partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Design Hardware, and Moya Living. Love you guys. And I truly appreciate your continued and unwavering support of the show and for the design community. For more stories like these from the design community, please make sure you are subscribing to the podcast so you never miss new episodes. And by subscribing, you receive them automatically to your feed immediately after they're published. So again, that way you never miss a show. Combo by Design is available everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And um, I have said this before, but maybe I haven't said it in a while. I, I love the emails. Uh, convo by Design at Outlook.com. Send me guest suggestions. Send me show submission ideas. I, I really do love them. It has introduced me to some amazing creatives that I might not have otherwise learned about or met had someone not dropped me a note. So thank you for that. Also, follow along uh, on Instagram, Convo by Design with an X. And um, I've said this before, I don't I don't post often, but when I do, some people find it enjoyable and hopefully you're one of those. So, <laughs> so check that out. Um, thanks. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for stopping by. I appreciate your time. I really, really do. And I hope this year is starting off exactly like you want it to. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, be well and take today first. 